kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, with me tonight is the best producer money can't buy, and that's good because I'm still not paying him anything. Hi, Very, how are you this evening? Oh, fine. Usual mucking about with audio just before the show. Well, <laughs> that's only because Mixler and everything else makes it so easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, without you, this show would sound much worse and in fact i think for the first entire year it sounded pretty terrible um except for when kevin kevin used to produce when he could which was interesting um so some kind of interesting things this week i finally read that well i finally saw that interview with edward snowden about the smurfs yeah that was pretty terrible the worst part is i mean if you look back through the stuff that the Intercept and the Guardian released, they've talked about that three or four times. Yes. About like paranoid Smurf and nosy Smurf and, and all the rest. And it's like people didn't get it. They didn't make the connection in their head until he was interviewed on live TV and, and they started showing this is what this is what it does, this is what it looks like. And then people finally I think got it and it became kind of a topic of conversation um it's amazing how good gchq is at grabbing the data they want to get oh yeah um they have literally written the book on it and they've been doing it for a damn long time well ever um, since telecommunications got invented yeah exactly uh, i'm sure they could teach the nsa a thing or two well they do that's that's <laughs> one of the problems yeah it kind of is a problem. Um, so, speaking of bulk surveillance, <laughs> <laughs> um, what we were talking about is the way they steal your telephone data, um, GCHQ. There's uh, four programs um, that they use to steal your data on your smartphone. And one of them the most interesting one I think is Paranoid Smurf the one that wipes itself completely off your phone wipes all traces of those programs away so you never really know if you've been hacked or not yeah it's almost as if they're clever buggers yeah uh, yeah, you know (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, uh, I said it before, they tend to recruit out of Oxford and Cambridge. So, right. Yeah. Well, no, you're not getting morons from there, that's for sure. No. But it kind of cracks me up. It's almost like the government read a whole bunch of Philip K. Dick's books and went, hey, that's that's pretty dark, but I don't think it's it's dark enough. No, I think, I, think you'll find, I think you'll find it's the other way round. People like Philip K. Dick and Heinlein and loads of the others found out what governments were up to and then oh, wrote their books. I'm pretty, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure. Um, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress is a very good read, by the way. I, you know, I that's, uh, that's why I like Heinlein. And in yeah. fact... Um, some of his other books are just so out there, but The Moon and a Harsh Mistress is, is one of my favorites. Um, and Dick, all of Philip K. Dick's stuff is just gonzo out there reading until you realize, you sit back and you, you look at the world we live in now and you go, hey, look, he's describing this surveillance program or that surveillance program, which makes it truly twisted and creepy reading. Yeah. Um, so, speaking of the wonderful government and its fantastic bulk surveillance um, my government this is my government government likens ending bulk surveillance to opening prison gates of course it does because once you create a panopticon you don't need to open the prison gates a justice department prosecutor said Thursday that ordering the immediate end of bulk surveillance of millions of Americans phone records would be as hasty as suddenly letting criminals out of prison Public safety should be taken into consideration, argues DOJ attorney Julia Berman, noting that a 2011 Supreme Court ruling on prison overcrowding, the state of California was given two years to find a solution and relocate prisoners. By comparison, she suggested the six months Congress granted to the NSA to stop indiscriminately collecting data on American phone calls was minimal. Ending the bulk collection program even a few weeks before the current November 29th deadline would be an immediate risk to national security because it would create a dangerous intelligence gap during a period rife with fears of homegrown terrorism, she said. The argument came during a hearing before the U.S. District Supreme Court Judge, I'm um, sorry, U.S. District Court Judge Richard Leon, who we know. Um, on plaintiff Larry Clayman's request for a preliminary injunction that would immediately halt the NSA program that tracks who in the United States is calling who, when, and for how long. The bulk telephony metadata program, which the NSA was authorized under Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act, was closed down by Congress in June with the passage of a new legislation, the USA Freedom Act. But notice when they pass legislation, it never really is what they say it is. Anyway... Uh, however, the new bill allowed for a grace period of six months in which the government could set up a less all-inclusive alternative. Clayman, an idiosyncratic plaintiff with a history of accusing the government of lying, seemed a bit unsure about specifically what relief he saw at the Thursday hearing, but he argued that the transition period granted to the NSA was too long. One day of constitutional violation is one day too much, he said in his opening remarks. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals in May ruled that the bulk telephony meta metadata program was illegal. Judge Richard Leon ordered, ruled in Clayman's favor in 2013, calling the government spying almost Orwellian. When Berman made her analogy to releasing prisoners en masse, Leon responded, 
that's really a very different kind of situation, don't you think? And Berman wasn't able to cite any evidence that the bulk collection prevented any sort of terrorist attack, or that ending it now would be a serious threat. That's the problem I had before. Wonderful, high, lofty expressions, general vague terms. But the government did not share a single example, Leon said. Clayman, whose arguments consisted mostly of accusing the government of lying and violating the law, decided by the end of the hearing that he actually wanted the entire of the USA Freedom Act stricken from the books because he insisted that Congress, in allowing an unconstitutional program to proceed, had violated the ruling of the Constitution itself. Judge Leon promised a ruling as soon as possible. Uh, vapors know who Richard Leon is. Without mm. him, we would not be vaping right now. So, the, the key bit in there for me is the phrase "intelligence gap." That, that kind of, you know. Well, there is an intelligence gap. There is a gap between the government and us. Yeah. And they might know more things, and they might have more data, but I don't think they're as smart as the people who aren't on the inside. Yeah. You know. Well, but, yeah, you know. uh, yeah. Well, we covered it earlier. GCHQ is very careful to screen who they have working for them. <laughs> Consequently, <laughs> they have lots of very smart people. I think in the U.S., you've got so many agencies and so many people working for those agencies. Yeah, screening's an issue. Uh, <laughs> I seem to remember the who was it did a, not so much a study but they went through different government papers and tried to figure out how many government agencies there actually were and estimates differed between 50 and 100 um, but there's probably more and no one knows exactly how many there are or exactly what each one does so you're going to have a lot of overlap you're going to have a lot of money being mismanaged, you're going to have a lot of outright theft, and you're going to have a lot of constitutional violations simply because of the way it works. The government seems to be obscure even to itself, even about agencies it's supposed to share data with. And I don't think that's a very good way to do business. It certainly doesn't seem like a smart way to do it to me. No. You know, uh, most places that are doing some sort of business are all about consolidating and, you know, reducing, uh, reducing tasks that one person can do. If you look at what the NSA does then the FBI does and the CIA does and all these other organizations that we've probably never heard of, it, most of them deal with our data, you know? Um, and it, it seems to me you could just have one do this, and it would cost a hell of a lot less. I don't think we'd get any more oversight, but, you know, it would probably be just as invasive, but somewhat cheaper for us. Yeah. <laughs> so, Never yeah. going to happen, though. Oh, I know. Since I agencies try. primarily exist to perpetuate themselves. So, of yeah. course. Yeah, you can, you can never, never, ever, ever, once you start a program, it never goes away. It never goes away. It doesn't. There, nothing is temporary, and we're paying for all of it, which is just, well, I can't even say we're paying for all of it. We're um, printing money to pay for all of it, I guess. So, yeah. Not quite sure what to say about that, although here's a good one. Obama administration won't seek encryption backdoor legislation. 
legislation. Well, they don't need to. They've got hackers, don't they? (laughs) The administration has decided not to seek a legislative remedy. Now, FBI Director James Carmery told a congressional panel that the Obama administration won't ask Congress for legislation requiring the tech sector to install backdoors into their products so the authorities can access encrypted data. Well, they don't have to. We know all the programs they've got that can do that. Gormery said the administration, for now, will continue lobbying private industry to create backdoors to allow the authorities to open up locked devices to investigate criminal cases and terrorism. The administration has decided not to seek a legislative memory remedy now, but it makes sense to continue the conversations with the industry, Carmery told a Senate panel of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee on Thursday. Carmery's comments come as many in the privacy community were awaiting a decision by the administration over whether it would seek such legislation. Many government officials, including Carmery himself, have called for back doors. All the while, there has been intense lobbying by the White House to guilt the tech sector for a backdoor. And Congress has remained virtually silent on the issue that resembles the so-called crypto wars. The president's public position on the topic, meanwhile, has been mixed. Obama said he is a supporter and believer in strong encryption, but also sympathetic to law enforcement's need to prevent terror attacks. The government's lobbying efforts, at least publicly, appear to be failing to convince the tech companies to build backdoors into their products. Some of the biggest names in tech like Apple, Google, and Microsoft have publicly opposed allowing the government a key to access their consumers' encrypted products. All the while, some government officials, including Cormery, have rallied against Apple and Google for selling encrypted products where only the end user has the decryption passcode. According to a letter to Obama from the tech sector, If American companies maintain the ability to unlock their customer data and devices on request, governments other than the United States will demand the same access and will also be emboldened to demand the same capacity from their native companies. The U.S. government, having made the same demands, will have little room to object. The result will be an information environment riddled with vulnerabilities that could be exploited by even the most repressive or dangerous regimes. This is not a future that the American people nor the people of the world deserve. The government cannot force the tech sector to build encrypted end-arounds. The closest law on the books is the Communications Assistant for Law Enforcement Law of Act of 1984, also known as CALIA. The measure generally demands that telecommunication companies make their phone networks available to wiretaps. So they're not going to do it now, but they're still going to keep nagging the tech companies to do it for yeah, them. The, the one that gets me there is... What is it? Uh, he's sympathetic to law enforcement's needs to prevent terror attacks. It's quite simple. Stop giving weapons to crazy people. Well, weapons, money, stop making friends with, you know, insane people in the middle of the mm-hmm. desert. Yeah. I don't know. So we don't like the really. guy in charge, so we'll give the crazies that oppose him loads of weapons <laughs> and support them. Then they end up in charge, and we end up not liking them. So then we find the next bunch of crazies to give the weapons to, which is quite often the guy we deposed in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) Never-ending cycle. it, It really is. The foreign policy of America is insane. Oh, it's not just you. Uh, The British, the French, uh, the Italians a little bit. The Germans a little bit, the Russians, 
Yeah, everybody gets up to it. Yeah, but, you know... Apart from the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, yeah they, they don't seem to get too involved with other people's internal politics or their internal struggles to... On the other hand, people. though, Boffers is technically a Swedish company uh, and will happily sell weapons to anyone with money. Well... No one said they had to have scruples about everything, I guess. I don't know. Well, they are technically neutral, so, you know. <laughs> I will neutrally allow you to kill anyone you, you see fit. <laughs> oh, dangerous country, Sweden. You do know they've got stealth warships. Did not know they had stealth warships. Yeah, mis- missile of, cruisers. Apparently, that's kind of terrifying. Apparently, one of them could cruise into the Thames. Right flatten half of London and you wouldn't know it was there until it started firing. Well, that is reassuring. <laughs> that's the Swedes. <laughs> yeah, that's the Swedes, but, you know... Luckily, they're a neutral th- country. Yeah. Let us not forget that your people have something that, you know, is so hot it could just kill all life on the planet. Yeah. Well, anyone can technically do that. That's not difficult. Right, but most people don't publicize it either. Well, they didn't. It was it was just I only came across it weirdly, you know the Guinness Book of Records. Uh-huh. Well, one year I was I, I used to get them every year when I was a child. Right. And I was reading section largest explosion and it made reference to theoretical doomsday bomb blah 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 right. blah. And years later, I then looked it up, and it's like, oh shit! It's not That's just not theoretical at all. It, they really did postulate this thing. There's something terrifying about that, in a way. Yeah. That people can be that smart that they could kill us all and just. Oh, you'll be unsurprised of... to learn it only appeared in one year's Guinness Book of Records. Oh yeah, I could not. I could not imagine it being mentioned every year. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think I think the uh, the the editors probably got told no, no, you, you can't put that in there. Yeah. State secret. There'll be no more of this. What are you yeah. doing? Yeah. We didn't actually build it. That's what. <laughs> apparently, they told the United Nations. Oh God. I don't know. Weapons theory, that's what they call it. Yeah, I I don't have very good feelings about the United Nations, but we've talked about them before. I think they're, uh, I think they're quite, um, they could be useful. They actually acted according to their charter instead of doing stupid crap. And I would not want to be a peacekeeper for those people, I've just got to say. Um, the, the people at the top, just like any other large money-making machine... They make all the money and the people at the bottom who are peacekeepers or whatever get like broken helmets and guns that don't work, you know, and, you know, they'll hire apparently absolutely anybody. Or in the case of certain British military officers working as a peacekeeping regiment, save Mm -hmm. thousands of lives and then get officially rebuked for doing so because (laughs) you intervened in a conflict that wasn't sanctioned by the UN. Yeah, well... How how dare you, I guess. That's Which, that's the worst one I've heard of. Yeah. 
you know, British troops protected people in the town and then got told off for doing it. It's like, what? But we're supposed to be peacekeepers. What's absolutely amazing to me, and I didn't mean to go off on the UN tangent tonight. I really, I'm sorry. But <laughs> it, it was there, so I needed to talk about it, I guess. Um, what's absolutely amazing to me, though, is all the people who've absolutely been victims, victims of, you know, the UN's peacekeeping efforts. And yet, years later, they talk to these people and they say, well, the UN is our only hope of peace. Holy fuck, you better hope it's not your only hope for peace. Because yeah. if that's the only hope for peace you've got, and they're screwing up like that... Well, part of the problem is the UN... Um, the countries have signed up for the UN peacekeeping program. But... Yeah. The levels of troops they have to supply is so low that the UN peacekeeping force can't usually do very much. So well, it's kind of... All they can do is protect the UN compounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know. This show winds up being stream of consciousness more often than not. Even though we have kind of a, a guideline we go by. I'm sorry if uh, people are having a problem um, <laughs> with it. I didn't mean to. So, yeah. Okay. This one's called Law Enforcement and the World Wide Web of Spies. It was written by a very, I don't want to say very smart lawyer, but a lawyer who's involved in the intelligence apparatus Administrative subpoenas, grand jury subpoenas, and search warrants are incredibly powerful tools that interact strongly with the web's construction. For the typical web page, it is part of a worldwide web of spies, reporting a user's behavior back to third parties. With a well-structured subpoena or warrant to Google, Facebook, or Twitter, it is possible to reconstruct the majority of a typical target's browsing history. Almost every web page is a minefield of tracking devices, little elements that report this person visited a web page back to a third-party service. Some are analytics tools, which notify the site's operator of how users behave. Others are social widgets, like the ubiquitous like button. And some are advertisements, which don't just bombard the page with advertisements, but also report back to the advertising network. Each connection generated by these elements sends a cookie, a small identifier, back to the third-party service. Some cookies such as those to Facebook or Google, directly identify a user while others, such as the double-click cookie, are synonymous, supposedly unlinking to an actual identity. Even a well-constructed site like Lawfare contains trackers reporting back to Google, Twitter, Crazy Egg, Facebook, and Adobe, a small number compared to the New York Times 35. Silicon Valley companies don't tend to like discussing this web of spies, Facebook's Guide for Law Enforcement doesn't even mention the tracking inherent in the like button, although Facebook does admit it collects this data for use in advertising, building up a better profile of each user. Since this data exists, however, law enforcement can ask for it. A search warrant to Google, Twitter, or Facebook could specify all page view tracking information collected. This allows a reconstruction of the bulk of the user's page views, not just their search history, email, and profile. For Google, the warrant could also demand the separate double-click cookies advertising-related tracking. For although the double-click cookie is synonymous, Google can trivially tie the double-click cookie to the Google identity, and if they value their investors, they already do. 
In addition to the web history, this also gets the target pattern of movement. Each logged page also includes an IP address. Such metadata can reconstruct the target's movements by using an IP geolocation database. Handy if the target has enough sense not to use a cell phone. It is the company, not the user, that gets to object to this request, as it is the company's data. Depending on laws and company policy, the companies may attempt to fight such orders, but in the end, they are likely to lose. By any resemblance standard, this data is remarkably similar to the phone data in Smith v. Maryland, data freely provided by the user's browser to the third party. The only real protection is that law enforcement appears unaware of what they can ask for. It is not just law enforcement that can demand such access. With the increasing use of encryption, it is harder for the NSA to passively suck up a user's page view. But a 702 order to Google can reveal every page a target viewed on the Washington Post's encrypted site and any other site containing Google trackers, regardless of encryption or whether an NSA wiretap recorded the page views. I personally find the tracking that occurs on the web repugnant and take individual steps, notably using Ghostry, love Ghostry, awesome tool, to mitigate this web of spies. I also find the notion that I have no say in protecting my data from law enforcement disturbing. So why am I writing this? Because the only way to mitigate the problem of ubiquitous tracking is to publicize it. The World Wide Web of Spies is a dangerous phenomenon, and the only way to mitigate it is for everyone to understand what it has created. I would much rather Silicon Valley not collect this data. I would much rather the law allow me to challenge any attempt to access the data. But as long as they collect it and the law does not protect it, law enforcement has a right to use it. Yeah. So when even someone who works for the intelligence community is squeamish about it, there's a problem. Yeah. Well, the problem is with this is the usual issue. Technology has moved along really quickly and law has not kept up with it. So while there should be data protection laws in place for all this tracking information, there isn't. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that is part of the problem. The other part of the problem is I think people don't realize that if something is free, you're the product. Yeah. And they're going to make money with you absolutely any way they can. It's repugnant what the government can do but it's even worse what the advertisers can do what they can unlock what they can tell about you simply from the things you like whether you know it or not as human being i mean you're you're the weak point in all of this you are the leaking device you know what i mean it's not the computer it's not so much the pages it's what you do and it's your habits and what they tell about you. Well, I mean, I've said it before. I'm rather surprised. I haven't had a call in from the police or some security agency <laughs> over my browsing habits. Because um, I visit some incredibly weird and wonderful places. <laughs> um, you do, actually. Um, I think you were the one who showed me threat maps. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, if you want to see something freaky, threat maps is, is something you really want to go look at. Um, because I think, what were we talking about, Ebola at the time? It was Ebola, or, yeah. It was Ebola. Somebody was asking for a map of where Ebola had hit and, you know, where the UN and 
where everyone else was in relation to that. And I really couldn't find any sort of data like that. But you found the that website, and my God. Yeah, I've put it in chat. <laughs> that thing is kind of freaky. And yeah. what's, what's even, and it's not so much funny, but um, in all those maps, right, that someone put together through data aggregation, there's something called the presidential threat map, yeah. <laughs> which is really worth looking at because um, was there like a one square mile section the time we looked where someone wasn't threatening the president? Yeah. 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 So, somewhere in Idaho or something weird, some yeah. weird out of the way place in America. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, Wow. So there's just like one person who's not disgruntled. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that's very interesting. So things like the data you leak could conceivably use, be used to create something like this. Like the global incident maps, right? But if they're for intelligence communities, you're never going to know what they're going to say. You know? I don't, I don't know a really good way to describe to people what the leaking of their data can do to them. But if you take a look at this website, and this is just news aggregation that's done this. Imagine how much more they would know if they could track your Google searches for flu symptoms or pink eye or what you bought from Amazon. Oh, geez, or sorry, what you typed in the search bar. I brought the map up. Apparently somebody in Croydon down in London has dengue fever. Really? Yeah. That'll be a holiday that was memorable then. <laughs> Is that a holiday in Cambodia? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. Um, so, yeah. It's very hard to describe to people that they, they are the weak link. And what they do if they're not careful, can leak their data everywhere. So, like I said, I know I have one device that nothing is touched, and yet we know that the government can hack an air-gapped computer. Yeah. They've proven they can do it. So, what's really safe? Well. Sending a letter through postal mail here gets that letter photographed and put in a database for the government to use. Allegedly, they can't see inside it, but, you know, really at this point, who the hell knows what they can see and what they can't see? Oh, no, 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 no. And a, a quick uh, photograph can get the contents of inside an envelope, unless you foil wind your envelope. <sighs> so... Tin foil, not just for hats anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think people don't realize how much they're being watched. And it's everybody. And the there's only two things that can happen. Um, you make it really, really hard for yourself to be watched and monitored and tracked. And you do that simply because it drives up the cost of doing it. The more you drive up the cost of doing it, the less attractive this option is 
to the government to keep an eye on its people by constant surveillance. And I think that's really the only solution. Make it as expensive for governments to do as possible, and they won't want to do it anymore. Wow. I didn't say they wouldn't. I just said they wouldn't want to. If you've got nothing better, yeah. If you've got nothing better to do, you, you, as far as the internet goes, you you play the little game like I do, where I I have basically a completely different persona online. Mm -hmm. It's still me, but very little of it actually leads back directly to my actual name. Right, which makes sense. Or my date of birth, or my birth location, or any of these other little things. Yeah, I don't really, and I hate to say it, I don't actually have anything to hide. But what pisses me off is that that little bit of privacy I really want, I can't have it. (laughs) Just that little bit, that little bit that says, you know, I clicked on this YouTube song and it was Wiz Khalifa. And it's not something I would normally listen to. And I don't really want anybody to know that. But somebody knows that about me. And they uh, might not know it outright. And you've but just told everybody here. Hmm? So, hmm? Yeah. And you've just told everybody here. Right. But I'm just saying. You know, I'm, I'm using the most outrageous example I could think of. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't say I posted uh, a video of me dancing around in my underwear, singing in a freaking hairbrush or anything. Which I didn't. Um, I'm way too paranoid for that, I guess. Um, You're not a teenager. That's, yeah. I'm really not. But um, the idea that I don't have the privacy to do with that bothers me. It bothers me deep down in a way that it probably shouldn't. And it just sticks in my craw. Because you know what? I, I'm a good person. I don't knowingly go around breaking laws. I, I pay my taxes. I'm nice to strangers. I try to help those in need. I do charity work. And still, with the government doing what it does, it's treating me like a common criminal. And that pisses me off. Okay. All right. I think I got that out of my system. We'll find out because there's (laughs) plenty more stories like that. Just in case you were wondering. Oh, um, I am so sick of the EPA. (laughs) I really am. These incompetent fucks need to get fired. Okay? Just just throwing that out there. And in a minute, you, you will know exactly why. EPA crew at Standard Mine above Crested Butte triggers waste spill. Okay? This is dated in October. Okay? So this is relatively recent. This is on top of poisoning the water supply in Colorado. They helped yet again. An Environmental Protection Agency crew working at the Standard Mine above Crested Butte triggered a wastewater spill into a creek that flows into the town water supply, a small-scale repeat of the Gold King incident earlier this year. Only an estimated 2,000-gallon spill Tuesday amid efforts to open a collapsed portal. The impact on the town water is expected to be minimal. Critics pounced. U.S. Representative Scott Tripton said the spill... While not a disaster like the EPA triggered 3 million gallon gold king sludge deluge that turned the Animus River mustard yellow, raises questions about the EPA's procedures. They told us things were going to be different. Now we have a spill, 
We've apparently got a real challenge with the EPA, not only with notifications, but their accountability and their ability to adequately execute these type of cleanup projects, Tripton said. They've got resources, they're the ones in charge of the program, and they've had two spills in my district alone. Is there a better way to approach this? The Standard Mine, five miles west of Crested Butte and abandoned, has been designated an environmental disaster since 2005 and targeted for a Superfund cleanup. It is one of an estimated 230 inactive mines in Colorado that state officials know to be leaking toxic heavy metals into the headwaters of the nation's rivers. EPA work at Standard Mines was halted after the August 5th Gold King blowout above Silverton, pending an EPA review of procedures at the old mines. Well, that makes me feel good. That's like when the spy agencies can review what they do and the TSA can review what it does because, you know, they're never going to find they've done anything wrong. Sorry. The Standard Mine work resumed September 5th, Tuesday's spill. The spill happened at 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, and the EPA said it immediately informed public works officials. Residents weren't notified, because you don't need to know when you've got toxic sludge in your water, because fuck you. Crested Butte Mayor Aaron Huckstep said he wasn't notified until Thursday. That's two days. Two days drinking poisonous sludge. That's fine. EPA officials on Wednesday responding to the Denver Post inquiries about the mine didn't reveal the spill. On Thursday afternoon, the agency issued a prepared statement saying that based on neutral acidity and creek flow levels, Crested Butte didn't close its water intakes. Subsequent investigation found no visible plume or signs of significant impacts in downstream locations, the EPA said. At the cleanup site, acidic wastewater leased with cancer-causing comedium and other toxic heavy metals leached out of the mine into Elk Creek, which flows into Coal Creek, a primary source of water for Crested Butte. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has determined that the levels of arsenic, comedium, and link, I'm sorry, zinc in the Cold Creek exceed state standards. Huckstep requested the EPA help test water in Elk Creek, Coal Creek, and in town, I want to make sure that the EPA's work is being done in a diligent manner and that their contractors are following the right procedures. We'd like to see these types of events not happen, Huckstep said. Obviously, after Gold King, there's a high level of public concern and attention, rightfully so. The EPA is willing to come in and do the work. We support that, but we want to make sure that these types of circumstances don't happen. The local Coal Creek Watershed Coalition began additional water sampling along the waterways to determine what the impact of the spill was, Director Zach Von Vonner said. While this event is unfortunate, we have great cooperation and partnership with the EPA working on our watershed. From what I understand, they've kept the town staff and coalition in the loop, but not the people, because fuck the people. The EPA has been working towards installation of a long-planned bulkhead plug inside the mine, an effort to reduce the flow of acidic wastewater leaching caladium, arsenic, lead, and manganese from tailings and tunnels. How it happened. Well, the EPA is the EPA. How do you think it happened? EPA crew members were drilling a new opening into the mine parallel to a portal that has partially collapsed. They were using a vacuum truck to siphon water from a waste pond, but the truck quote, dipped too low, the EPA statement said, causing gray-colored water from inside the mine and sediment to spill into Elk Creek. 
Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman, who threatened legal action after the Gold King disaster, said she'll do all she can to protect the state's resources and hold the EPA responsible. Once again, the EPA has apparently endangered Colorado's waterways while drilling at an abandoned mine, Kaufman said. I continue to be concerned that the EPA wants to zealously regulate Colorado's resources but refuses to be held accountable for their own activities when they negatively impact our state. Yeah. Mm. They, they don't seem to realize what the word protection means in their own title. Well, I mean, you remember the story about Gold King. Yeah. Uh, where the guy who worked, who used to work for the EPA, said, you know, they've been trying to make this area into a Superfund site for 20 plus years. And residents have been saying, you know, no, thank you. No, we know what's coming out of this mine. It's at levels where it's not dangerous to us. We're good. And yet, they did what they did. And now it's a Superfund site, whether people wanted it or not. And so many people made their livings off that river. Yeah. Whitewater rafting, hunting. You had people that grew farms along this river. All of that is pretty much gone. Yeah. I would assume. Just well, the color this, alone is going to make people not want to go there. This, this latest one's a doozy. I mean, cadmium is... Uh, yeah. No, it's not good. Yeah, it's going to end up in the food chain because of that leak. But it's okay. The people don't need to know. That's, that's uh, everybody will be part. glowing in the dark slightly more than they did before. Um. <laughs> you know, I have a real problem when we have governmental agencies that think they're infallible and that their choices hurt no one, or apparently they just don't give a shit. You know. Well, and yeah. I mean, forget- they they closed down to have an investigation after Gold King. And obviously it's like, no, everything's fine, just do everything the same. Oh no, it's happened again. I don't understand how it happened again. Yeah, well, you know, yes, there were toxins there. Yes, there were environmental toxins there. Yes, they were slowly leaching into the water, okay? When stuff slowly leaches into the water, it can kind of get filtered by the aquifers. Yeah. What what I want to know is, does the EPA actually have somebody who knows how to do safe drilling? No. No. Fuck, I wouldn't want these people involved with drilling anything. Nothing. Not even a hole in the freaking wall in their own house, because obviously they're too incompetent to handle a drill bit. (laughs) And if they're too incompetent to handle a fucking drill bit, what in the hell are they doing in charge of something... It's not as if they can't get get decent staff, because loads of the oil companies have been paying off drilling crews. (laughs) They're rather good at it, so yeah, they could get them in. Well, that's probably more expensive than hiring Cletus with one eye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, because I really don't think the people that are doing this are doing anything more than what they're being told to do. I can't prove it. But there's something really wrong when two of these incidents happen in such it's, a short span of time. It's a government project. It's the a government project and it's being done the people, by whoever and we're okay with it. 
the the work will be being done by whoever put in the lowest tender. So yeah, yeah. exactly. But this is a problem. This is a problem. Apparently, the people in charge of the EPA are incompetent numpties. Because they're choosing all the wrong people to do really difficult work. Go ahead. That's just saying it's an awful kind assessment. (laughs) I really wanted to go off, and I did go off when I read this, because I was like, are you kidding me again? It's been... It started in August. Now it's October. So right around Christmas time, we should be expecting another mine disaster from the EPA. I mean, because we're going in two-month cycles here. Well, I'll expect some sort of huge collapse in a mine somewhere in Colorado. Because they'll have pumped all the water out. (laughs) (laughs) Leaving a big hole. and (laughs) Yeah. It's fine. Oh, Oh, we made a sinkhole. (laughs) I don't know how that could have happened. (laughs) God. Yeah. It's like these people just have no understanding of earth science. And and how can that be? They work for the EPA. Okay. I'm sorry. So, um, actually, good things coming out of California. I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) Good things should not be coming out of California because now they're scaring me. I think it's a sign the four horsemen are coming. Uh, Brown signs bill reversing bans on clotheslines. California now has a right to dry after state after state after Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill Thursday restricting homeowners associations from banning clotheslines, which the groups deemed unsightly additions to neighborhoods. Assemblywoman Patty Lopez, Democrat San Fernando, announced Brown signed her bill AB fourteen forty eight, which will allow line drying for people who once restricted by their property management organizations. Growing up, my family and many of my neighbors used clotheslines as the way to dry their clothes and other laundry, Lopez said in a statement. Californians can now do their part for the environment while saving money on their electric bill by using the sunlight to dry their laundry. The bill titled Personal Energy Conservation Real Property Restrictions is meant to serve as a victory to conservationists and frugal Californians alike by allowing them to save money and energy. Now, the law states landlords must allow tenants to air dry their clothing in their own backyard if they wish, as long as the clothesline or drying rack will not interfere with the maintenance of the rental property, and the use of the clothesline or drying rack does not violate reasonable time or location restrictions imposed by the landlord. The law was long awaited in a state with a history of energy issues. At the height of the 2001 energy crisis, conservationists such as Mindy Splatt, spokeswoman for the Utility Reform Network, which also backed the bill, scratched their heads in disbelief as the homeowners associations continued to prioritize aesthetics. At that time, the majority of the 35,000 homeowners associations in the state banned tenants from drying their clothes in the sunlight. Splat said the battle has still carried on today. There were tenants in Chinatown, right here in San Francisco, that were facing eviction for line drying, she said. It is actually a serious issue. She called it unconscionable that a progressive state would allow homeowners associations to shun a cost-effective energy-saving tool. This is a way we can extend the benefits of solar power, Splat said. It's shocking that a state like ours doesn't have an abundance of, that has an abundance of sunshine that people don't use closed lines. California joins Florida, Maine, Utah, Vermont, Colorado, and Hawaii as air-dry positive states. Air dry, what the hell? 
I'm sorry. <clears throat> still, still good <laughs> progress. Progress. Yeah. Insane that they can, they can actually ban clotheslines in the first place. Well, homeowners associations are fucked up little Nazi organizations. Oh yeah, I know. We've got them over here as well. Oh, they're just terrible. It must look pretty. No, we've all got to live here. Yeah. Well, so. what, what gets me is, right, they're all about aesthetics of neighbourhoods and stuff like that. Right. And, and and then I've seen pictures of your neighbourhoods at Christmas. Uh, and and how can anyone think that looks good? Um, <laughs> I don't know if it looks good, but it's definitely a show. Uh-huh. And, and not so much anymore. See, I... I've really been interested in just things I noticed since the economy's gotten worse. People don't put up as many Christmas lights as they used to. And it's got to be because they can't afford it. Well, at least these days, somebody who's smart can get LED lights and Mm -hmm. light up their whole building like fucking Las Vegas for (laughs) very little electricity usage. Yeah. But it That's still true. looks awful, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I think it, it depends on, on how you do it. And I, I've got LED lights on my two little shrubs in the front of my house. And they're very small, and it's very unobtrusive. It doesn't look like... It doesn't look ridiculous and over the top. And I think that's just enough lights if you feel like you need to have lights up to celebrate Christmas. Or and, and what for, have you. For all the... All the people familiar with uh, fast tech, they've already got all the LED Christmas lights and everything in. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, drawing on a line isn't really bad in Florida. You've just got to time it perfect. <laughs> and it's better for sheets um, than towels. Cause yeah, towels humidity are is a problem. Like a lot longer to dry. Yeah. So um, it's, it's great for bedding. Well, Scotland, which notoriously doesn't have a lot of sunshine, um, fantastic air drying your clothes here. Um, and it's not because of the temperature. Right. It's because it's of the dryness. One reason why Scotland's quite cold is, despite the amount of rain we get, it's actually quite... Um, it's not very humid. So things dry quite quick. Yeah. No, and that's a good thing. Uh, I told you California was doing other good things. And yes, LED Christmas lights cost five times more than incandescent. But um, they also, also use like, a 40th of the power. So right. yeah. yeah, but there's also Woot and things like that that have these, uh, they run specials on this stuff. Where all the LED lights, I guess, Christmas lights that didn't sell last year, they sell them there for a cut rate. Um, so it's worth looking into. Also, I saw Fast Tech had the solar LED mm-hmm. strings. Those are kind of worth looking into because then it's a cost-negative feature after you've paid for shipping and used your labor to put them up. So, let's see. The second good thing, California. <laughs> California now has the nation's best digital privacy law. The best. Something you actually want your own state to do. 
California concluded its long-standing tradition for forward-thinking privacy laws today when Governor Jerry Brown signed a sweeping law protecting digital privacy rights. The landmark Electronic Communications Privacy Act, Barnsay State Law Enforcement Agency, or BARS, wow, that's altogether one word. These people really, really need good editors. Uh, bars any state law enforcement agency or other investigative entity from compelling a business to turn over any metadata or digital communication, including emails, texts, documents stored in the cloud, without a warrant. It also requires a warrant to track the location of an electronic device like a mobile phone or to search them. The legislation, which easily passed the legislator last month, is the most comprehensive in the country, says the ACLU. This is a landmark win for digital privacy in all Californians. Nicole Olzer, Technology and Civil Liberties Policy Director at the ACLU of California, said in a statement, We hope this is a model for the rest of the nation in protecting our digital privacy rights. Five other states have warrant protection for consent, and nine others have warrant protection for GPS location tracking. But California is the first to enact a comprehensive law protecting location, data, consent, metadata, and device searches, Ozer told Wired. This is a really comprehensive update for the digital modern age, she said. State Senators Mark Leno, Democrat of San Francisco, and Joel Anderson, Republican, Al- Republican Alpine, wrote the legislation earlier this year to give digital data the same kinds of protection that non-digital communications have. For what logical reason should a handwritten letter stored in a desk drawer enjoy more protection from warrantless government surveillance than an email sent to a colleague or a text message to a loved one, Leno said earlier this year. This is nonsensical and violates the rights of liberty and privacy that every Californian expects under the Constitution. The bill enjoyed widespread support among civil libertarians like the American Civil Liberties Union and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, as well as tech companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Dropbox, LinkedIn, and Twitter, which have headquarters in California. It also had huge bipartisan support among state lawmakers. For too long, California's digital privacy laws have been stuck in the dark ages, leaving our professional emails, text messages, photos, and smartphones increasingly vulnerable to warrantless searches. Leno said in a statement today. That ends today with the government's signature of Cal Epica, a carefully crafted law that protects the personal information of all Californians. The bill also ensures that law enforcement officials have the tools they need to continue to fight crime in the digital age. The law applies only to California law enforcement entities. Law enforcement agencies in other states would be compelled by the laws in their jurisdiction, which is why Ozer and the others say it's important to get similar comprehensive laws passed elsewhere. The law places California not only at the forefront of protecting digital privacy among states, but outpaces even the federal government where such efforts have stalled. Civil libertarians and others have long lobbied federal lawmakers to update the Electronic Communications Privacy Act to offer such protections nationwide. An amendment to that law has been winding through Capitol Hill, where it has 300 co-sponsors, but the proposal is less comprehensive than the law Brown signed and would merely focus on digital content. Currently, the federal EPCA requirement requires a law enforcement for stored content that is newer than 180 days. The amendment would extend the warrant requirement to all digital content regardless of age. California has long led the way in privacy protection. Voters amended the state constitution in 1970 to provide explicit privacy rights far more robust than those guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. 
But while the state amendment ensures a right to privacy for all Californians, lawmakers couldn't envision the technological advances that would come in the decades to follow. The law that Brown signed today closes surveillance loopholes left by that amendment and codifies what was intended by that privacy right, Ozer says. We certainly have hope this bill is a clarion for the federal amendment, she told Wired. This is not only a comprehensive update for all Californians, but hopefully is a model for making sure that all Americans have this kind of digital privacy protection. Now, we don't need it. We're, we're fine with you stealing our shit. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and I find it amusing because, yeah, you're only 20 years behind Europe. <laughs> well, I mean... The first that's... Data Protection Act in the UK was back in the 80s uh, for protecting computer data. Mm-hmm. And it got it's been updated several times since. Yes, well. So yeah, you're you're a little bit behind <laughs> over your way. Um, well, California, I mean, uh, what they've brought in is good, still not as comprehensive as they've got in Europe. So. Right, but it's something. Yeah. Which is more than what most of us have right now. Yeah. Which is the unfortunate part, and in this country, politics runs about twenty years behind the people. Yeah. It always has and it always will. I mean, that's well, just kind of how it goes. Legislation always runs behind. Um, technology advances far too fast for lawyers to keep up. Well, yeah, but it's well, that's what you get. That's what you've got in Congress, mostly. Lawyers, bankers. Mm-hmm. People that sit on boards of large corporations make shit ton of money from their decisions. Well, so, for, for a start, they always want to do some sort of they need to set up a committee to look into something. That takes a couple of years. Then then the committee asks for reports to be done. That takes another <laughs> couple of years. Then they argue over it. Some of the reports have to be redone. Yeah, I mean, well, governments are hilarious when it comes well, to... Well, I don't think you can prove to me that my federal lawmakers work 40 hours a week. No. It's almost 7 o'clock. You want to grab Alex? Yeah. Thanks. Okay. It's just going to be a minute till we do the CASA update, guys. I figured I would let you know if that's what you're listening for. So. Soon. Evening, Alex. Good evening. Good evening, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 10-12-2015. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. So, you just came back from a trip? I got back uh, yesterday afternoon. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I was down at uh, VaporCon, VaporCon East. For, nice. Uh, I got down uh, Friday evening and uh, was there for the Saturday event right did did you have a good time yeah it's good to hang out with uh you know other casa people get to get to see elaine and uh brian carter Mm -hmm. and uh ron ward was down there as well nice um and uh vaporcon is the it was actually it seems i think there was a lot less people this year um, which was actually kind of a good thing. It's you know it's an, it's an old school, you know it's one of the first vapor events, and uh, it's in a smaller space. So having less people around actually, 
I think makes things a lot more accessible and, you know, it's just easier to uh, mingle and chat with people, which yeah. un unfortunately I, I don't do very well, but <laughs> <laughs> um, other people uh, have, have a much better time at these well, things than I do. So, um, so that's good. That's good. Um, so has anything interesting happened this week? Well, um, it was the article that you shared. I should actually start this off by um, issuing a correction, I think, possibly for the past few um, uh, podcasts. And uh, that is, I, I typically start off by saying, uh, well, there's not much going on. Uh, the correction is, that's wrong. There's always <laughs> tons of stuff going wrong, going on. And uh, it may not be at the legislative level, but there are just so many other things to consider that I, I can't honestly say that, well, there's not a lot going on. So um, <laughs> just want to officially issue that correction. Um, okay. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I just, I guess a couple of things to discuss. Um, you had, had shared with me the article about uh, Durham, North Carolina, yeah. Um, implementing. I was a bit confused by the article, and I honestly have not researched the the ordinance that's passed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, it sounds like the city of Durham has included vaping in their smoking ban, um, which the state of North Carolina has a statewide uh, indoor smoke-free air law. Um, and the, the, the vaping stuff is sort of catching on. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so Asheville, North Carolina, earlier this year, included vaping in their smoking ordinance. Mm -hmm. uh, and you now Durham has done the same. Uh, and there was a difference between the, the, the city of Durham and the county of Durham. Right. Um, and so uh, it, it sounds like for the county, Mm -hmm. This is sort of a uh, an, an optional thing. Right. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up. And I think I, I, I'm not sure if I made this point in the Asheville call to action. But um, uh, in, in the beginning, you know, the first time I went to Asheville was in 98. And uh, the, the city had adopted kind of an informal smoking ban in public places. Right. It, it was set up that essentially all a business had to do was post a sign saying smoking is prohibited uh -huh. and the city basically had their back, which, you know, when you think about it, that's a pretty appropriate way to do things. If you mm -hmm. as a business want to prohibit something, uh, like smoking in your establishment, then by all means, you should have that right. And there okay. should be something in place enforcement wise that, that supports your decision. Uh -huh. Um, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, that eventually changed. And, and, you know, a lot of businesses in Asheville, um, that's what they chose to do. There was a lot of smoke free establishments in the city and it was, so much so that, that, you know, the places that I was going with the people that I, I was visiting the city right. with um, were mostly smoke-free places. 
And that, that was one of the first times that I realized kind of the hold that cigarettes had on me uh-huh. um, in that, you know, I, I, I was able to smoke throughout the day, but I wasn't able to smoke a whole lot. So uh-huh. by the end of the first day, I started to feel kind of depressed yeah. and, I, and I, I really couldn't figure it out until I realized, oh, it's because I haven't had a lot of cigarettes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Total side note there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this, that, that kind of sounds like what the county of Durham has in place, which is if you're a business and you want to prohibit vaping, you basically just put up a sign and the county's got your back. Um, The city, on the other hand, has included vaping in their uh, existing smoke-free air laws, uh, which I I think if the article actually stated that... uh, that means no vaping within a hundred feet of a bus stop. Mm-hmm. Public park. Is, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's pretty extreme. Um, and uh, yeah, there was some other commentary in there about you know uh, maybe it was the North Carolina indoor clean air law. I, I kind of clicked some of the links or mm-hmm. did a little bit of research and saw that um, you know. Somewhere it was that, you know, you had to be 10 feet away from an entrance, but, um, you know, what good yeah. does that do? You know, like, I, I understand it with, with smoking cigarettes, it, you know, the smell carries and it'll go right in the door. And, you know, I've, I've been in plenty of places, you know, San Francisco is a pretty good example. You know, you, it's smoke-free everywhere, but, um, you know, when you're in the mission, it, it's it's pretty tight down there. So, uh-huh. you know, somebody standing on the curb outside the bar or restaurant, you know, you open the door and it comes right in. Mm-hmm. So, and there's lots of other interesting smells in the mission. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it, it's all pretty, the, the whole distance thing, especially with vaping is, is absolutely absurd. Um, but the overall point was, uh, in terms of North Carolina, if anybody is in North Carolina listening to this, um, I'm speculating here, but if my memory serves me correctly, the indoor smoke-free air law in North Carolina started very much like this, where right. businesses had that option to mm-hmm. prohibit use in their establishments, and it kind of grew out of that into just being an outright prohibition of smoking in public places um and so you know this is uh, obviously a, a concern going forward and you know this is north carolina north carolina is a, a very uh tobacco friendly state <laughs> for yeah. obvious reasons Indeed. Um, so uh yeah it's it's just this is this is something at the municipal level that advocates in north carolina should be very conscious of, I would say any of the, you know, the tobacco states, um, this is how it starts. This is how the, uh, this is how the law was amended in New Jersey. It started in Paramus, right. uh, which is just, it's, that's a city in Bergen County. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it started there and it made its way to the state legislature and became, uh, you know, the amendment happened in 2000 happened in 2009 went into effect in 2010 and new jersey was the first state to prohibit vaping indoors everywhere um 
So, uh, yeah, a lot of these things start small. They always do. And it, it seems like they're, they're hitching them to the smoke-free laws that they have the clean indoor air acts or outdoor as it is in this municipality. Yeah. And it's yeah, like, like anything that we're discussing, the, uh, um, <clears throat> they see the most efficient way to go about this is just to redefine tobacco to include all things nicotine. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. No worries. Uh, so um, that was that. Um, the second thing to talk about, uh, we I haven't, it, it's unfortunate that we'll, we'll probably have to go back and get the link set up for this. Um, I need to get some more information but uh, back in the summer, I think we had sent out, I actually don't know if we got around to sending it out. We were kind of toying around with this. Right. Um, California has ballot initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, I guess, where, is that where Proposition 65 came from? A ballot initiative probably yeah i can't remember um so uh yeah this is kind of a way for citizens or i guess anyone really to you know really circumventing the legislative process but uh you know in the event that certain things don't get don't make their way through the legislature citizens can bring them up and uh there's a whole process to getting this on the ballot and so all of those initiatives were released uh last week i believe and uh we're on there vaping is on there uh so (laughs) it's it's the second one down and it is actually called uh uh now i gotta open stuff up okay um it's not a big deal no you know far uh, more about this than i do so (laughs) Um, let's see. Uh, Some, did I keep it in this folder? It's just kind of interesting how much stuff gets passed, kind of without anybody noticing. Yeah, well, this is even more. This is a. This is a more deceptive. If you, you can ah. say that. Um, so it's kind of insidious in a way. Well, the, so, okay. So here's, this is one of the points that I, I, I think that people should be making about this. First of all, you can go and comment on these initiatives. The attorney general has posted these up. Uh, and at some point, probably this week, uh, we will provide a link. Uh, and it, it's, uh, actually, if you want to look at it, uh, you know, you can Google um, California initiatives, ballot initiatives. Uh, I'll share the link with you, Jan, if you want to share this okay. in, in sure. the, the chat. All right. um, but uh, so the title of this initiative is somewhat deceptively the California Healthcare Research and Prevention Tobacco Tax Act of 2016. Uh, And the reason this is so concerning is that we have 
a lot of vapors out there who really don't have any problem with what's going to happen to cigarettes and other tobacco products. Right. Uh, but that kind of large group of people don't realize the trend of including electronic cigarettes in tobacco laws. So if you do the math, eventually all of those horrible tobacco laws will apply to vaping. Yes. Um, and so that's where this becomes deceptive because it doesn't separate electronic cigarettes from tobacco. So the concern is that when this makes it to being a petition and you have to get a certain number of signatures in order to get it on the ballot, mm-hmm. that people who vape will look at it and say, sure, I have no problem raising taxes on tobacco. Here's my signature. In reality, what this proposal seeks to do is define tobacco to include anything that contains nicotine, except, of course, for gums and patches that have been approved by the FDA to fail, and <laughs> uh, and impose a tax on them. And it's not just on the liquid, but on the devices and accessories. Um so, that, yeah, there's a lot of problems with this, but um, I, I would recommend anybody who wants to get an early start on this, and this actually, uh, someone else had suggested this, um, right. credit where credit's due, she knows who she is, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, one of the points to make is that the title of this act is deceptive, and it does not specifically include electronic cigarettes in the title, right. uh, and so... And, and this is one of the uh, things I did a little bit of reading in that, um, you know, if, if the initiative itself is not clear, uh, then, it, you know, it'll either need to be reworked or could just be completely thrown out. So um, mm-hmm. uh, this is just but this is just one point that uh, the title of the, the initiative needs to be changed in order to clearly communicate to people what it's proposing to do. Right. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's more a, a sign of things to come this week, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I'll, I'll hopefully have something. Can Can I just concrete. make a, a quick, just quickly say something? Um, mm-hmm. If someone comes to you with a ballot initiative, and and people are always walking around with them down here, um, <coughs> wants you to sign it. Really don't, because a lot of these people are paid per signature, and they will say anything to get you to sign them. So be sure you know what you're signing before you put your signature on it. Yeah, and legally, I don't think they, that the the people handing out or or collecting the signatures, I I don't think they actually have to be straightforward with you. They don't Uh, have to tell you the truth. Yeah, I I mean, if anything... Um, ask them for a copy of of the full text of of, of what they're asking you to sign. I, maybe, that maybe at the very least they're required to carry that around. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, or just tell them that you're busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, as far as I can tell, what we're looking at right now, there's a, a sort of 30 day comment period. It's open until. Uh, the beginning or middle of November. Um, and so that's, I actually do really need to get something out this week. Um, but, uh, this is a comment period. So this is not, 
we're not voting here. You're not signing anything. You're not nothing along those lines. But we are California residents are welcome to post some sort of comment about each one of these initiatives, uh, and we'll be asking people to comment on this one specifically. Um, and this one will take a little bit of work. Uh, this is not something that we can do through um, the same system that we use for other calls to action. You're not specifically reaching out to your lawmakers. You are commenting directly on an initiative very much like the FDA. So, um, you know, we'll put together some talking points and, and, uh, and give you some stuff, give you some pointers to get you going. Excellent. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's California. Um, the state that never sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> they love they love making the law there. Yeah. Um, what was the other? I feel like there was another policy thing, but there was one more thing I, I definitely that came up this weekend, um, and, and I thought that this this could turn into a project for for somebody. Um, I'm not signing any of us up for it because we've got <laughs> enough stuff to do, but. Um, and if there are any eager beavers out there that want to do some amateur science, um, <clears throat> uh, we had a, I had a, a vendor come up to our table and uh, kind of, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, so the FDA, what's going on with that? And, you know, <laughs> you start to answer and they sort of fire back. And this guy came back with, well, you know, I just heard it was going to be mainly about like, you know, labeling, like a warning label and then, you know, oh, kitty stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's, you know, obviously we do what we can to clarify that and, and make mm -hmm. sure that they understand that this is much larger than just some words on a bottle. Right. Um, <clears throat> and of course, even that, you know, has its own set of consequences that could be, uh, you know, <laughs> depending on how these laws are written, that something like that could be disastrous for the state or the entire country. So, right. um, uh, but the, my, my curiosity was, and, and I think Brian had brought this up was, you know, if that's what people believe, mm -hmm. and, and I think he, he, he had kind of experienced this at another convention in Texas was, right. you know, people walking up and saying, Oh, well, I heard this. And, and they're sort of different stories that people have heard about the FDA deeming regulations. Right. Um, and, you know, I, everybody should be really clear that there have been a few different things that have happened this year. Um, you know, we have the, the, the deeming regulations, uh, which was that last year? Was that last April? I yes. think so. Yeah, so the yeah. deeming regulations were published last year, and they're still going through that process of being finalized, which uh, at some point they were at Health and Human Services. Now they go back to OMB, OIRA, uh, and, and then that kind of goes back and forth possibly for a little bit. You know, it's, right. it's going to take some time. In the interim, the FDA has been conducting studies, getting listening, getting, you know, soliciting information from experts and the public and whatever, mm -hmm. and... We've had a couple of things come out recently, one of which was about, uh, you know, what would appropriate warning labels be, which we have submitted a comment on. And now there's uh, um, the most recent one that came out was 
drawing that distinction between, uh, you know, a, 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 an over-the-counter tobacco product or nicotine product versus a medical device okay. or, or yeah. product, mm -hmm. um, which everybody is kind of looking at with a very fine-tooth comb, uh, you know, because that there are some weird nuances to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've had a couple of other things come along, but those last two bits, those are not, those, that's not the big one. <laughs> that's, that's kind of, there's, as far as I know, there's no rule that is coming out of that right now. That's sort of down the line. The deeming regulations need to be finalized before any of that would really take effect and mm -hmm. affect our access to vapor products. Exactly. Um, so I guess, I guess what I was getting at was I, I'm actually really curious about all the different things that people have heard about what the FDA is doing. And I guess you can kind of broaden that to what do they know or what do they think they know about federal legislation, state legislation, and what's going on locally. Uh -huh. um, because, you know, we spend a lot of our time saying FDA deeming regs, 99.9% of vapor products will be taken off the market within two to four years, right. blah, blah, blah. At some point, I think people just kind of go deaf to that. Probably. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, 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 it's not broken record. It's, it's more. It's, well, you it's know, it's, it's, I think it's kind of like the, the death of a thousand cuts. After you get the first or the second or the third, um, you kind of become numb to it all. You know what I mean? It's it's so slow. The process is so slow, you can almost forget it's happening. Yeah, so it, I guess at, at some point, you know, our message becomes probably a little bit stale. And, um, you know, and we're waiting, of course. Everybody is sort of waiting for something to happen. Uh, and... Uh, in the interim, in the void of anything solid coming out of the federal government, I think people's imaginations tend to run a little bit wild, um, uh -huh. or in this case, tend to run a little tame in thinking <laughs> in thinking that it's not going to be that bad. Um, um, yeah. So you know, it, it's it's very important that I would recommend if anybody finds themselves in a conversation with a vendor or a consumer who you know, is under the impression that this isn't going to affect them or isn't going to affect them all that much. Um, I would start by referring them to our comment on the deeming regulations. Um, and uh, it's, it's thick. It's not, you know, it's not recreational reading, no. but that, that in and of itself should, should set off some alarm bells for you that, that this is serious business. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to collect some of these myths <laughs> at all, or oh, you know, maybe if, 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 maybe you could do a, a myths infograph. Possibly. Well, yeah, I guess I, I, I need cool to. I need. Pictures. I need to hear them. I need to hear them and collect them first. So, if okay. if anybody listening has heard some myths or wants some things clarified, uh, trust me, I, I have access to some some experts here on on the board and on the board of advisors at CASA. Um so if anybody is interested uh you know send me an email a clark at 
kasa.org and uh and i know that julie is going to transcribe that in the notes and and laugh uh <laughs> an evil laugh when she does it maybe an right. empathetic laugh or a sigh <laughs> i'm not sure but um you know if, if you hear something you know send it my way and and i'll see i'm just i'm just curious honestly and i and i'm i i think that's a pretty good way to engage people is you know tell me what you think you know about this and let's see if we can clarify it for you yeah. um engaging with people is, is certainly a lot better than just kind of endlessly churning out information <laughs> that's this kind of the same over time there was actually a study done on that that anybody who's listening to your show is probably familiar with the the drop-off of the what was it the fda campaign that they spent millions of dollars on and you know they yeah. they ran the the first section of it for six months of it and after like three months it just everybody's bored with it and there was really oh, yeah. no response and but they still had millions of dollars to spend on it something <laughs> like that so yeah anyway well and that that happens with everything and i think we have information overload which is kind of why i suggested like not so much an infographic but maybe you do such good work when you publicize the calls to action with the photos and just i don't know i think people tend to be more visual than word oriented sometimes it yeah. uh, might be an easier way to engage with people yeah i was daydreaming about an instagram campaign to you know get people informed about all of this so um maybe that's something else I'll, I'll, I'll work on maybe this incorporates into that i don't know fta regulation myths <laughs> yeah be great yeah it'd be something um i guess that's it for this week yeah um oh yeah, the, well, it'll segue to this. So, it, the, okay. you know, that whole thing, that interaction with that particular vendor and, and others that, that we've encountered okay. really hammers home the point that, that everybody should should be promoting uh, the call to action to support H.R. 2058. 58. Get your, get your people to, um, to co-sponsor it. And, yeah. and I, I, I want to see... I don't exactly know how or if it's going to work. We're, you know, we're in the middle of October, so it's time for me to send out another email blast to everybody. But um, I would particularly like to see some bipartisan interest in this bill, um, yeah. which I'm not holding my breath or you know, anything <laughs> like that. But, uh, I, I, hey, a boy can dream. So, <laughs> um, so I think everybody who lives in a... a, a a district represented by somebody who's not Republican um, should really try to convince your, your Democratic, your Democrat representative to uh, take a closer look at this issue and get on board with us on the right side of history. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important. It is important. And um, it, it, on this one issue, it would really be nice to see some bipartisanship. Um. You know, I, I agree with you. Someone can dream. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. And I guess that's it for this week. So thank you for everything you do for us, Alex. Um, and thank you to everybody who listens. Um, we are 
Kassam Media on Instagram, Twitter, Google Plus, on Facebook. We are the We Are Kassa member group where people can chat and the official Kassa Facebook page where people can catch links to our calls to action. If you're not already a member, please consider signing up and becoming a member of Kassa so that we can inform you when things like this are about to happen so that you can be your own superhero and help save vaping. Um, thank nice. you, Alex. <laughs> Good night. And thank you. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So I've got to go from that back to something incredibly depressing. Um, I just said a bunch of good things about California and then Alex came on and told you something that wasn't really good about California. So sorry about that. Uh, and someone in the chat made a, made a comment that the governor was probably trying to protect themselves from something and they probably actually are. They kind of do that thing. Yeah. They like looking after their own self-interest. So I thought this was really interesting. Um, does anybody know anything about basic income? Not really. Okay. Um, the, the basic income idea actually came about from libertarian economists who said they wanted to smash the welfare state, right? And they were saying the welfare state was um, horribly abusive to people and, and treated them like animals and people who couldn't make their own decisions. And, and what they wanted to do was make it so that people had some sort of choice over their own destiny, whether they got money from the government or not. And even if you go back as far as, as Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine had some really interesting ideas um, about the government and money and people living in a country and running it like a business. It, it's all really, really interesting stuff. Um, the idea has been co-opted a lot recently. Um, other governments and other political parties are jumping on it as if it were their own, but it, it really isn't. I mean, it, these ideas come from Rothbard and they come from great libertarian thinkers. Um, and people see libertarianism as it is now through this lens of this thing that the only thing that matters is property rights, which is true. These are also people that say, you really have no rights. All you have is property. And the only right you have is a property right. So your arms are your property, your legs are your property, your information is your property. The only rights you have are property rights. But libertarian people did a lot of really interesting thinking. And I thought I would read this to you about Finland. Finland, new government commits to a basic income experiment. The new Finnish government has committed to a basic income experiment as part of its program for government published last month. The commitment consists of one line, implement a basic income experiment in the health and welfare section of the program. The main party of the government, the center party, and the new prime minister, Jua Svia, are known to be supportive of basic income, 
but his new government partners, the Populist Finns Party and the conservative NCP, have not spoken publicly on the issue. The scant reference to basic income raises some doubts about the government's commitment to the policy. Nonetheless, this marks the first commitment from a European country to implement a basic income experiment. It will be the first experiment in a developed nation since the 1970s. Other experiments have been performed more recently in India, Nambia, and Brazil. Every experiment so far has reported very positive results with improved economic performance, health, housing, and other outcomes. It also reflects the increasing interest in basic income worldwide with the prominent European parties like Hominid Podemos in Spain and D66 in the Netherlands adopting it as a policy. The government has not released a timescale nor any further details about the experiment. Um, I keep talking about we need to fix the money. We do. We need to fix the money. We need to fix the way jobs are created and labor is treated in the labor pool. And more and more, I sound like I'm a red. (laughs) I sound very communist when I say these things, but I say these things only because I work in a menial job. And I understand the need for some protections that we don't have. The rise of automation is going to drive jobs like mine out. Nine to four point nine billion jobs in the next 15 years are going to be gone. And I'm not an uneducated person, but I live in a place where my education does me no good. Where there are pretty much only menial jobs open. And a lot of people find themselves in those circumstances. People graduate college with multiple degrees and have no way to earn a living take all the menial jobs and you take and automate them it's going to be tons of people that are going on the welfare rolls and I think a lot of the beginning ideas of the basic income experiment were if you could get people's basic needs covered and they could do what they love they would contribute back to society I don't know if it'll work or not. I just think it's really interesting, and it's the first time I've seen a country commit to it in since before I was born. Yeah. So, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. So, um, if you know, if anybody is actually interested in that, is actually being an idea, I'll stick a link up in the chat. And I, I know. I sound very leftist when I say things like this. I don't think that I am, but what do I know? I just think it's a really interesting idea. When I think libertarianism, I I think them talking about stopping the spread of crony capitalism and stopping corruption in politics. I don't think of them as thinking about other people's economic welfare. So it's really interesting stuff. Okay, I guess I'm done with that one. Um, So that wasn't incredibly depressing. I think it just shocked people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although, you know, I don't think money is really real. I don't think it's based on anything. It's just an idea, a fiction. It's like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. So if it's not really real... It's the Harmon idea like that. Okay. The Easter Bunny's not real. I know. I'm so sorry. <gasps> oh, I didn't no. mean to tell you. But how, how else do alien eggs get spread around? 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you take a ship, fly it into space. You fly it specifically at a mining colony. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Don't I know if this people have really seen that photograph. Hmm? Don't know if people have seen that photograph. Got to drop that in chat. The Easter Bunny photo. <laughs> I will have to look at it later. Because I'm looking at a really fun story about the FBI. <laughs> okay. So, does everybody know about the new chipped credit cards that you were supposed to get by October? Yeah. I'm not going to get one. I'm on the wrong type of bank account. Well, I've got one. A lot of people I know have them. I mean fond of having a card that's shipped, but I have one. It's better than me having one, so. Okay. FBI issues warning about new credit cards, then removes it at the urging of banks. The FBI issued an advisory about security risks related to new chip-enabled credit cards, but then removed the advisory from the web. Here's what you need to know. Yesterday, the FBI issued an advisory about security risks related to the new chip-enabled credit cards. And if you've seen them, you know what they are. They have a little sort of gold or, depending on your, well, most of them have these little gold-colored chips. Um, and nine things you should know about your, okay, there, there's actually a link to about nine things you should know about your chip-enabled credit cards, but you, you can follow it from the first link I put in there. Today, however, the FBI removed their advisory from the web. The public service announcement entitled, New Microchip-Enabled Credit Cards May Still Be Vulnerable to Exploitation by Fraudsters, warned that the use of a PIN for authentication was needed in order to take advantage of the security offered by the chip and raise questions about the security of the chip and signature model being deployed around the country. I discussed this problem in detail in my article last week. The FBI has not commented on why it removed the post, but Computer World's Matt Hamblin reports that it did so at the urging of the American Bankers Association, which asked the FBI to revise its warning in order to, quote, reduce confusion. Okay. The confusion may have stemmed from the fact that the FBI stated that when making payments, people should use the PIN instead of a signature to verify the transaction, something that generally cannot be done at American retailers. In fact, it is a bit perplexing that the FBI was apparently unaware that such security is not available to most Americans. Interestingly, the FBI warning highlights the tug of war between financial firms, visas, banks, etc., pushing the chip and signature model, and retailers who, like their European counterparts, want the security that the chip and pin delivers. Banks commonly point to the fact that only small amounts of credit card fraud can occur from cards physically stolen and used for in-person purchases, while retailers want the maximum return on their investment in the new chip-enabled credit card processing equipment. The FBI seemingly sided with the merchants, stating explicitly, merchants are encouraged to require consumers to enter the PIN for each transaction in order to verify their identity. Perhaps this alarmed the ABA as well. But sadly, warning or no warning, the reality still remains the same. Chip and PIN is the standard for security in-person credit card transactions around the world for a reason. The use of PIN numbers makes it a lot harder for people to make unauthorized purchases with stolen credit cards. Chip and Signature does offer some benefits, 
over older magnetic stripe cards, as I discussed in my article last week, but we should be working our way towards chip and pin and not settling on a method already known to be deficient. So, yeah. Ah, Basically, see, yeah. This is where I should the FBI have read didn't it. know that we yeah. didn't... Ha- Isn't that great? This, this is something, a shame I didn't read the story in advance. Yeah, because chip and... It, I didn't think it was about chip and pin, which is yeah. standard in Europe. It is. Um... So yeah, my card has that, but there's a newer version of it being rolled out over here. Um, the I like yeah, that the I FBI mean, doesn't even know what we have and what we don't have. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm just amazed that everywhere doesn't have chip and pin in the US because the banks over here supply the machines to the shops pretty cheaply. Right. Well, we don't have it here because. In fact, a lot of the cheapest ones are supplied by PayPal. Huh. Well, we don't have it here because profit, 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 screw the American people, or something along those lines. I'm not really sure. But in the electronic transfers are cheaper and faster than the ones involving signatures. So, yeah. <laughs> so they That get doesn't quicker. stand up to scrutiny. So, yeah. <laughs> well, um, that is how we roll here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, chip. I mean, in Europe, they're talking about chip and pin not being secure enough. Oh, God. And they're rolling out a more secure version. Because mm-hmm. uh, scammers have figured out how to get around chip and pin. So, right. yeah. So the States is lagging quite far behind on that one. Have you seen our roads and bridges? Just <laughs> 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 thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. Um, so I, I hadn't really read this before, um, and I had to look it up because something about it was really bothering me and you you don't so much see this in mainstream media and this case is pretty old third person charged and probed into us into alleged us Pentagon rogue operation. Okay. This is true. I looked everything up as far back as I could go. A third person has been charged in a complex criminal investigation into the procurement of weapon silencers by the United States Department of Defense, which one American newspaper has described as a possible, quote, rogue operation. The case concerns the Directorate for Plans, Policy, Oversight, and Integration, an obscure civilian-led Pentagon office whose stated mission is to provide logistical support and procurement for intelligence operations conducted by the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. According to media reports, more than three years ago, the directorate ordered 349 weapon suppressors, known commonly as silencers. By general admission, silencers are not the type of military hardware used in conventional combat. More importantly, the procurement cost of the silencers should have been no more than around $10,000. However, the purchase records show that the directorate paid the supplier of the silencers over $1.6 million. The supplier then turned out to be the brother of the directorate's officer in charge of intelligence, David W. Landersman. Last week, it was revealed that Landersman became the third person to face charges of theft and conspiracy as part of the investigation. Initially, Pentagon officials suggested that the silencers had been purchased for a top-secret operation codenamed Upstairs. The operation was allegedly a special access program aimed at arming foreign paramilitary forces, 
while avoiding the risk of weapons being traced back to the U.S. Though limited details were provided, one government witness told the court that the military hardware acquired through upstairs was intended for the U.S. Navy SEAL Air Land Team 6, commonly known as U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6. The Special Forces team became famous in 2010 when it carried out the CIA operation Neptune Spear, which killed Al-Qaeda founder Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Later during the course of the investigation, however, SEAL Team 6 representatives told court officials that their unit had not ordered the silencers and knew nothing about them. Following that development, government prosecutors objected to further discussion of the case in an open court due to alleged sensitive natures of the case. Since then, much of the court documentation on the case has been filed under seal on grounds of national security. But the discrepancies in the case led the Washington Post to speculate last year that the procurement of the weapon silencers may have been part of a, quote, rogue operation that is a military activity not authorized by the Pentagon leadership. The Post spoke to an unnamed former Navy Navy official familiar with the investigation who said the Pentagon's Directorate for Plans, Policy, Oversight, and Integration was building its own mini-law enforcement and intelligence agency without oversight from the higher-ups. Another unnamed source, a former Pentagon official, a fi- official familiar with the directorate, told the paper that deeper issues might be at play in the case. Last week, a Pentagon spokesman said that Landersman was no longer performing duties in any way associated with intelligence for the U.S. government, though he appeared to still be employed by the U.S. Navy in a clerical capacity pending the outcome of the investigation. <laughs> yes. Four and a half thousand dollars per silencer. Yeah, that, yeah. that's a markup. Yeah. Well, it's they don't even cost up. that much over here. I know, but I mean, the thing is, I found that article. I found it in no mainstream media. I found it in an infosec publication. That's where yeah. I'm finding most of this stuff now. All this stuff that sounds really weird where this source talked to this source and they're building a paramilitary organization. All this stuff is coming from InfoSec stuff. None of it's coming out of anywhere else and trying to trace it back is a pain in the ass. I did trace this one back. It is true. But we'll never know what they find because they're doing this in a secret court. For all my bitching about secret courts... My problem with the secrecy of the processes, I mean, we know the process is kind of fucked. But don't we have a right to know where our money is going? Yes. Yeah. But you never will. No, I know we never will, but I'm still mad about it. You know, as a private citizen, I have a right to privacy. The government is supposed to be my employee. I pay it. I, therefore, have the right to know what it's doing while it has the right to keep the fuck out of my business. And we seem to have our roles reversed a bit, I think. Oh, and another thing about this story. Mm-hmm. He's still employed in a clerical capacity. I know. No, he obviously can't do maths. So, <laughs> yeah, don't let him near any paperwork. Um, well, he's still employed by the government. That should tell you something. Yeah. Okay, so here's a happy story. Does anybody out there live in Missouri? <laughs> <laughs> if 
you live in Missouri, if if you live in Missouri, you might want to pay kind of close attention to this. St. Louis, Missouri. According to an emergency plan recently distributed by the St. Louis County officials, a fire at the Bridgeton landfill is now within a thousand feet of a nuclear waste dump. The landfill fire has actually been burning for over five years, and they've been unable to contain it thus far. There are clouds of smoke that have been billowing from the site, making the air in parts of St. Louis heavily polluted. In 2013, Missouri Attorney General Chris Coster sued Republican Services, the company responsible for the landfill, charging the company with neglecting the site and harming the local environment. Last year, city officials became concerned that the fire may reach the nearby Westlake Landfill, which is littered with decades' worth of nuclear waste from government projects and weapons manufacturing. Remnants from the Manhattan Project and the Cold War have been stuffed there for generations. The site has been under control of the Environmental Protection Agency, of course, because they do our country's best fucking work, since 1990, but they have not made any significant effort to clean up the waste. They're too busy drilling wells in mines and cleaning up the water. (laughs) Although the fire has been burning for over five years and the city began making evacuation plans last year, they didn't tell the public until this past week when they leaked the emergency plans to a local news station, KMOX. St. Louis County evacuation instructions when Bridgeton landfill fire reaches uranium and thorium. Okay. So I'm going to stick a link in the chat so you can see it if you're at all interested. Um, yeah, it didn't come out to be a freaking link. Let's try this again. I'm trying. Okay. According to the emergency plan, if the fire reaches the nuclear waste site, there is potential for radioactive fallout to be released in the smoke plume and spread throughout the region. It gets better, folks. It gets better. This event will most likely occur with little or no warning, the plan notes, listing the municipalities directly affected, like Bridgeton, Hazelwood, Maryland Heights, the village of Champ, and the city of St. Charles. County Executive Steve Stenger has promised that the emergency plan is not an indication of any imminent danger, but with a fire just a thousand feet away from a nuclear waste site, the danger does seem imminent for many of the city's residents. It is the county government's responsibility to protect the health, safety, and well-being of all St. Louis residents. None of this is meant to be alarmist, but you have to be prepared, Stanger said in a statement. However, this week, Coaster told the Associated Press that the fire is even closer to the containment zone than the city officials have even estimated because the radiation extends beyond the walls of the site. The emergency plan provides very basic options for people to either evacuate the city or stay sheltered in their houses. Aside from saying that nuclear contamination can spread throughout the area in plumes of smoke, there was little mention in the report about what they actually expect to happen. Also alarming is the fact that while there is an evacuation plan, there has been no plan proposed to actually stop this or clean the mess up. It seems that the local government and the EPA are just hoping for the best as the fire continues to spread. Mmm, lovely thorium. So, yeah, there's no... Report of what they actually expect to happen. Well, if thorium ends up being released in smoke, you inhale it, 
depending on the density of the thorium, you could be dead within 48 hours. You yeah. know. Yeah, the, the usual. Th- the thorium usual. is really, really bad. Yeah. Uranium, not quite as bad, funnily enough. But thorium, yeah. nasty. And I just, they've known for a fucking year. And yeah. just been like, oh, it's fine. They could have spent a year digging a huge trench between the fire and the dump right. and filling it with concrete mm-hmm. <laughs> to stop the fire being able to get across. But yeah. no. No, we'll write an emergency plan instead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's quite the plan. If yeah. you open the PDF, it's it's quite the plan. Oh, and they've I had can, this plan. I can imagine. <laughs> well, they, they've had this plan since 2014. Mm-hmm. They've had this plan since, so they've known it's a problem since 2014. And, you know, they just didn't feel like they needed to talk about it. Because apparently, whether you live or whether you die is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to fucking know. Well, to to give you a difference in what happens in the UK, mm-hmm. um, there's the quite famous Dunray nuclear reactor in the north of mm-hmm. Scotland which was the world's first fast breeder nuclear reactor. And they've been decommissioning it for, oh, 20 years now. <laughs> but they're, it's not the only reactor on the site. But right. a few years ago, one particle of radioactive material was detected on a beach nearby. That beach was closed for six months while they cleaned it. Well... That, that's the kind of response you get over here to a similar sort of situation. Well, like there's been a leak. Like, well, Close everything. Yeah. <laughs> here, oh, you're in Missouri? Fuck you. Yeah. Is apparently our response to this. Which lets um, you all... If, if, if the disastrous uh, drilling holes didn't bring it home, it really tells you about the competence of the EPA. Um, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean... I hate to beat a dead horse, but really, <laughs> I think this might be a good reason to defund them. Uh, are the EPA are the EPA staffed by rejects from TSA or something? <laughs> I mean, they might be. They might be, and it's and looking the worst that part way. About having a government job is you never get fired. Yeah, because these if people. If you're a contractor, just, it's a different story. Yeah, I mean, these people just. Do not seem to know what they're doing. Well, did you see? You weren't. It was. I think it was a week you had a vape event to go to, and it was just Jeannie and I doing the show. And one of the stories we did was about uh, Los Alamos National <laughs> Laboratories. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm familiar with that place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. So they sent out new rules and regulations and most of what keeps you safe from radioactive metal particles and all that stuff is clay kitty mm-hmm. litter yeah so they updated it to say that they would only use organic kitty litter well the only <laughs> organic kitty litter you can find is something called feline pine mm-hmm. they were packing this stuff away in that and a bunch of people got really sick from it Mm-hmm. Because they were following 
what they were told to do by these geniuses in charge. And that seems to be kind of the theme for dealing with dangerous shit that can kill you. The people at the top <laughs> who should know the most seem to know the least or seem to care the least. Oh, and it's, it, it's also a misnomer about clay. It has to be a specific density of clay. Right. Um, you know that lovely, dark, heavy red stuff that people like Georgia making clay. pots out of? Yeah, it's Georgia That's clay. the stuff that stops heavy particles, not... <laughs> yeah. And it's... It's not really suitable for the task because it stops being as effective when it dries out. <laughs> well, I mean... Water, uh, lead. That's the good things for stopping radiation. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we're just talking Los Alamos. They're only geniuses. <laughs> yeah, no. I've read their website. There are some geniuses, but they have serious deficiencies in their safety oh. protocols. You know, what I was it is? reading They've stuff. They probably hired EPA officials to write them for them. Yeah, well, uh, on Los Alamos, I was reading. I won't go into details, but it was a comparison between <laughs> two types of explosive. Right. And in the safety notes, in a font <laughs> twice as large, and bright red, it said, "Do not heat the samples past vaporization points." Now. You don't have to be a chemical genius to realise, oh, you, you're meaning to say you're having to put a warning in telling people not to get the explosives really hot. <laughs> yeah. It's like, who do you have working for you? It's like, um, apparently people that they ship back and forth between them and the EPA. I, I knew not to do that shit before I even did any chemistry. I mean... <laughs> yeah. There are certain things you just don't do. Yeah. Don't and heat up the explosive thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess... I'll probably end... Oh my god, there's so much NSA stuff. <laughs> there, There is so much NSA be. stuff. Yeah. Um, well, here's... I'm not even sure if this is good news, but um, considering we've talked about the EPA so much this evening, I guess I'll end <laughs> with this. U.S. court places hold on clean water rule nationwide. Okay, that's the EPA's rule. A U.S. court on Friday issued an order temporarily blocking the implementation of a federal water rule across the country, the latest in a series of legal setbacks for the Obama administration's environmental regulations. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit granted a nationwide stay against the so-called Waters of the United States rule, which is intended to clarify which bodies of water are covered by the Clean Water Act. Here's a hint. If you've read the Clean Water Act, you know they want to control the puddles on your property. The rule was finalized by the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in May, but still faces political and legal oppression. The appellate court said that 18 states challenging the new standards were unlikely to face immediate irreparable harm from the rule, but there is also no evidence that the nation's waters would suffer imminent injury if the regulation was put on hold. The state allows for a more deliberate <clears throat> determination whether this exercise of executive power is proper under the dictates of federal law, the court said in a majority opinion. 
The EPA said it respected the court's decision to allow more consideration of the issue raised by the case. A preliminary injunction had already been issued against the federal rule by the U.S. District Court in North Dakota in August. That order applied to only 13 states involved in the lawsuit. Late last month, a federal judge in Wyoming placed an injunction on the Obama administration's regulations for hydraulic fracking on public lands. The WOTUS rule has faced intense opposition from Republicans in Congress, farmers, and energy companies. Critics contend the rule vastly expands the federal government's authority and could apply to ditches and small isolated bodies of water. There's no sound? Hello? I'm okay. hearing the output, so... Uh, I don't the know. The output's I, going I, out, because that's what I'm listening to. Okay, well, I mean, I could hear you. I'm pretty sure you could hear me. Um, the decision is a critical victory in our fight against this onerous federal overreach, said the West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey in a statement. West Virginia was one of the states involved in the Sixth Circuit case. Multiple lawsuits have been filed in both federal district court and appellate courts since the final rule was issued, raising questions about the proper value for these cases. The Sixth Circuit is still weighing whether it has the authority to review these challenges or whether they must first be heard at the district court level. In a dissenting opinion, Circuit Court Judge Damon Keith said the court should not issue a stay before deciding whether it had an injunction. Um, I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news, but seeing how well the EPA is protecting the people of St. Louis, Missouri, and (laughs) how good it has done with helping the people affected by the Colorado mines, um, it might not be a bad idea to have someone oversee what they do. Well, let's face it, apparently a judge in Wyoming knows more about clean water than the EPA. Well, (laughs) apparently it's banning hydraulic fracturing. So, yeah. (laughs) I just, I'm blown away. I mean, not so much by the incompetence, because it's the federal government. It's the home for everybody who couldn't do a job they really need to be doing. Yeah. Um, And nothing bad is going to happen to these people. But people kind of really need to look around and pay attention to the federal agencies that are in their midst and what they're doing. Because we now know the EPA is is completely incompetent. We know that now. It didn't take much to learn it, but we all know it. And we should be fucking scared of them, I think. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) Wouldn't you be scared if, if your regulators over there started doing batshit crazy stuff like that? Well, we do occasionally. Uh, and then they get told to stop doing it. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's any solution. Just um, keep your eyes open. Well, you, I'm sure you, you sh- know what's going on around you, you. You said it earlier. One thing that needs serious uh, overhaul is definitely the EPA. So. They are doing tremendous amounts of damage to the environment. And to the people who have to live in the area with the wildlife, businesses, schools, radiation, <laughs> radiation, chemicals. <you> know, <laughs> they need to go back to school. The EPA yeah. needs to be reschooled, y'all. So I guess that's it. Advert. 
Excellent. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks, you guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening.